Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it's my great pleasure to have on the show, Laura Palmer. Laura, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Laura is Vice President of Sales at Unity Technologies. Unity is a 3D platform that is used in a variety of different industries, but they're best known in the gaming world. And you probably have Unity sitting on your phone because 50% of all mobile games are actually built on that platform. So we're not going to talk about gaming today. We are actually going to talk about what it is like to sell when your product is the underdog in the market. So we're going to have a lot of fun. She's Laura's had a, a couple great experiences leading sales teams in that capacity. Before we do that, we will do what we always do, which is, Laura, I'm going to ask you, what is your favorite sales or leadership book of all time and, and why? Definitely the one that stuck with me the most is called Power-Based Selling. It talks a lot about the psychology of sales. And that's one of the things that's always attracted me to this profession is the people aspect of it. And it's been a great influence over me. I spend lots of times coaching my teams on concepts like having a champion in the account and how to understand who has power in the account and how to go back and double check that the people that are telling you who have power in the account actually have power in the account. There was a friend that I worked with and we would go out on sales calls together. And oftentimes I'd be, you know, quiet, asking questions during the meeting. And his joke was, you know, what you do is bring cookies to the meeting. And I would laugh and kind of uh, under my breath think, okay, he doesn't quite get it. And there was a time when we closed a really big deal with a really large account. He kind of looked at me afterwards and he goes, wow, you do a lot more than bring cookies, don't you? <laughs> and I said, yes, I do. But the point being that I say, I can sit in a room and within 30 minutes, I can tell you who reports to who, who holds power in that room, who's saying something just because they want to sound smart in front of the boss, right? All of those really little nuances that I think can make or break you in the sales profession. My favorite quote out of that book, by the way, is look beyond the product, customer, and competition to center in on the customer's customer and the customer's competition. Yep, exactly. So if you can bring insight, right, as a salesperson about the customer's customer or the customer's competition, that's just killer. So few salespeople do that. And I think it's so incredibly differentiating. Yeah, and it takes time, right? You've got to, uh, you've got to do your homework as you go through the sales process to be able to get to that level as a sales individual. What was your first experience where you felt like you were bringing an underdog product or platform to market? Well, many years ago, I worked for a small startup in San Francisco called Evolve Software. And that was in the dot-com days. We were in selling a product that really no one had ever heard of before. So it was disruptive in the sense that people were typically not automating this part of their business. We helped organizations understand how to best deploy consulting and services resources across their customer base. Fast forward to my time at Google, and I think what was really interesting there is everybody assumes that Google is the 800-pound gorilla in the market, but I actually joined the enterprise division at Google, which is now GCP. This was back in 2010. You know, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to compete against Microsoft and Microsoft is everywhere and they own every relationship at large organizations. So how do you go in and try to get people to think differently about something that they've done the same way, probably for their entire career? And that was really the 
the job of the salesperson at Google Enterprise in the early days. I think the other interesting thing about Google at the time, right, is Gmail was free. So there was a perception in the market that this was a low-end type of product to be used for people that didn't want to pay for it. So again, going into a, a big enterprise and trying to convince them that, no, we as Google are ready for you, it was an interesting conversation. Whenever you're disrupting, it really goes back to how do you change people's minds about something? And that's a really interesting conversation. I think people that are good at sales that have come from more established companies, they may be very talented salespeople, but if you go to work for a disruptive technology organization and do a sales job like this, I think it makes you an even better sales rep. Let's talk two pieces. Um, One I think is, what did you perceive as Google's strategy for getting into the enterprise market? And then let's take that strategy and parlay that, I think, into where you were just going, which is that the, the way you sell may be very different and the type of salesperson that you need to do that job may be very different. But let, let's start with, if you can, a little bit of the strategy of what Google you know, thought was the way in. Actually, this strategy applies to many, I think, of the SaaS organizations we're seeing out there today, but a couple of different things. So, so they put out the Gmail product. Really, it was a 10x project inside of Google. And what that means is there are people or 20% project, people that were allowed to work on things that weren't their day jobs 20% of the time, the engineering teams were. Gmail was a result of that. Somebody felt like there was a better way to do email than the way that Microsoft and Lotus were doing it. So that's how the product came about. And often what Google will do is they'll take a product and then they'll just make it generally available to anyone who wants to use it. One of the benefits of that is you get this massive user base by which you can test your product to make it better. So that was interesting. So they put out a free model. The other thing we did is we invested very heavily in education. Many people out there listening probably don't know anything but Gmail, but that was a very specific and deliberate approach to the market. What was interesting is over time, I was there for about eight years, and what I began to notice was I would ask people this all the time. What do you think is the number one reason that people move to Gmail? And people would say cost. That was always the first one. It never was cost. These enterprises have plenty of money. People would say better collaboration. And that was important, but it wasn't the number one reason. So can I ask you, if you had to guess, uh, Jeremy, what would you say? Depends on the perspective, right? So from an IT administrator's point of view, it might actually be a a total cost of ownership thing Mm -hmm. Mm because that's where they're thinking. From a user point of view, I think my benefit is on collaboration. I mean, with Google Docs and Sheets and Slides and so on, like the collaboration thing is the main benefit to me. Actually, the number one reason that I found, this isn't a scientific study, but just from talking to lots and lots of customers over the years, it was to attract talent. So there were enterprise organizations out there that were having trouble attracting talent. And what they were finding is that their internal tech was lagging behind greatly. And so they needed to do something about it. They needed to change their image. And moving to G Suite, the Google products, oftentimes was a part of that change. So that investment in EDU in the early days, it finally started to hit the longer that I stayed at Google. So those quote unquote kids who were raised on on Google, that started to actually have a very real impact on organizations' decisions on what technology to use. 
So when you said investment education, it's quite literal. It was Google investing time and energy and money into the K through 12 or college world to make sure that those users who were going to graduate and become employees were already well-versed in the Google suite and would raise their nose at having to work somewhere that was so uncool as to not have Google suite. I mean, people, we heard stories about people turning down jobs. This wasn't always Microsoft. There were IBM products, there, there were other products. And, and this was, you know, a long time ago since then Microsoft's made huge strides and et cetera, but it was a really interesting time. So yeah, investing in in talent and having them grow up with a particular product does have an influence over the market. And we're seeing it at Unity as well. We, we invest very heavily in talent and companies now well beyond gaming are looking for people that know how to use Unity. And part of that is because of the investment that we make in EDU. So we covered, I mean, a couple of those higher level strategy points, right? About seeding the market in general, and then also developing the cool hip factor, I guess. So let's translate over that to the sales world. So how did, I guess, Google enterprise salespeople get past the gatekeeper into the decision makers to sort of be able to execute on that strategy? Very carefully. Um, We realized very quickly, and, and look, we lost a lot of deals. We lost a lot of deals in the 11th hour because we didn't have the influence over a corporation that our competitors had. So what we had to do was find a champion inside of the account. So someone we knew that cared so deeply about something attached to this technology that they were willing to go to bat for us. So a lot of the quote unquote selling effort really had very little to do with the tech itself and more to do with the people inside of the company. And as you said, who their customers were, right? What they were trying to achieve and then attach ourselves to those people and hopefully make them really successful. If it was about the talent decision, was HR your champion then as opposed to IT or someone who's you know a GM? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, when you go in to sell a disruptive technology to the people who are using the old technology and their jobs have been built and are dependent on that, that's a rough go. So we had to think differently about this. Oftentimes, we would sell to the CISO inside of an account. We'd spend a lot of time with the chief security officer because Google invests a ton of money in security. So we oftentimes would spend time explaining that we think we can keep your data safer than you can, right? That's a very delicate discussion and you have to have it with the right people. Oftentimes it was the CEO. So how can we help modernize your company? How can we help drive innovation? Google was well known for innovation. And in all of the research they did, collaborating more effectively was one of the key factors that drove innovation, right? That ability to gather ideas from everywhere. Google Docs was front and center to what we did inside of Google. We also spent a lot of time bringing people to our headquarters and showing them the way Google worked on Google. And that would, you know, really bring some people, get them thinking in a different way about some of the current challenges they had in their organization. The objection part of me is saying, okay, but you guys were Google, right? Like you had the money to invest in the education market. Right. Uh, and, and sort of seed that world and, and give the product away. You had the brand, you had, you know, relationships. 
I don't know if this is a good transition to Unity, which you know is presumably less doesn't have that same brand uh, as Google does, or an Apple right. or a Microsoft. Like, how do you deal with it when you don't have all those resources? If you're an underdog, you're never going to outspend, outmarket the competition. So you just have to be smarter about it. I will say at Google, we used to joke, people thought we had all this money and, and, and they do, but they're very choosy about where they spend it. So inside of Google Enterprise, that's not how it felt. The investment was definitely there, but we had to work very hard to continually prove our worth inside of the company. You're right. We had the brand with Google. So we always used to joke, we could always get a first date. That was easy. Everybody wanted to come to the campus and have lunch and see what we were doing, especially 10 years ago, right? But it was sometimes hard to get the second, right? So was what we were saying, was it resonating enough to have people invest time? I think if you're at a company that doesn't have the brand, doing your research to really understand the key problems that an individual may be having that your product can solve for, that's really important. So personalization is really important. And I believe that's what gets you in the door. Expand a little bit more on that. Like when, when you're trying to get in the door, and, and I was talking to someone else about this, I'll frame it a little bit more about different types of personalization. Like there's industry personalization in a way, right? That you know what industry they're working in. There's role personalization. And then there's like truly individual personalization. Mm-hmm. Where have you coached your sellers to, to focus in that spectrum? I coach them a lot to focus on how do you make that individual successful? So I wouldn't necessarily suggest a, a salesperson go sit down and have a coffee with somebody and say, so what's your, what is your pay based upon, right? How do you get your bonus? There's some nuanced ways though. You can actually figure that out because ultimately we're all at work for a reason. And oftentimes I want to figure out what will make that person successful. And then if my product can help with that, I think you can have a real genuine conversation about how you can do that. And at that point, it becomes a team effort rather than you, a salesperson, doing a typical sales campaign. And I'm not sure if that makes sense, Jeremy. It does. It does. It also made me reflect a little bit on the book you mentioned earlier on power-based selling. So I think there were references in there to this idea that there are certain people who are motivated by taking risks and then other people, right, who are, are far more risk averse. I would presume that there are different ways of engaging those people, or do you just try to find the the risk lovers? Well, I think you try to find the risk lovers for sure. That would be the easiest way. We would always look for shakeups at companies, what was happening. When somebody new walks in the door, there's a tremendous amount of pressure on that person to do something different, right? So oftentimes, if you've got a solution that is new and different and disruptive, that could be exactly what those people are looking for. We used to tell a story too that would be, we were going after the people that if someone were to come up and say, no, we don't want to do this with, you know, with whatever product you're selling, that that person would slam their fist down on the desk and say, I don't care, we're doing it. So a lot of it went back to just, like you said, the risk taker, but the personality of the person and then understanding the influence they had inside of the organization. So Sometimes that person may not be the obvious choice in terms of their ability to write the check, but they may have a tremendous amount of influence over the person running the show and with the ability to write the check. You want to find the risk taker and then you want to understand what their influence is in the organization. And when those things line up, it's really great. Do you feel that it's sometimes hard to find the the true decision maker? 
Oh yeah. And I believe they write about it in power-based selling, but I could be wrong. This concept of triangulation, I'm sure you've heard of it. People are always going to tell you they have the power to do something. It's your job as the sales rep to go and triangulate, ask a number of people, do they actually have the ability to make that call. I'm actually in the middle of a deal right now with somebody on my sales team and we're closing in, nearing in on the end of the opportunity. And it's a big one for our company. And the uh, question was asked, all right, who signs this? Well, the CEO of the division signs this. Okay, great. I heard that from two different people. My team heard it from a couple different people. We have the paperwork. It's ready to go. Let's go get the signature. Oh, turns out that person actually doesn't sign it. It has to go to the parent company, right? So these things happen all the time. Try as you may, sometimes you get it wrong. But I think the best way to mitigate the risk is to ask many people in the organization the same question and ensure you're getting the same answer. Sometimes the most basic things are the best ideas. And I think that's a really good one for you guys, right? So you've got this incredible market share in mobile gaming and you're trying to get into film and animation and other worlds where it's really not a cross sell. I would presume that it's not as if you have a customer who's in gaming, who is also in film or engineering and construction or whatever, right? Are it totally new accounts? For the most part, yes. I mean, we have accounts like Disney where they recently sold off much of their game productions, but um, we do have accounts that will do both, especially the crossover between media and entertainment and gaming. Warner Brothers is another great example of that. But for the most part, correct. We are going into brand new accounts that don't know much about Unity, but that are starting to hear about it. And uh, we're paying attention to what the market is telling us. I'd love to split our discussion and start actually with sort of the Disney's and Warner Brothers of the world and then go into the net new accounts. We were having a debate actually internally earlier today that the conventional wisdom is that you should absolutely leverage a referral from your existing customer into the other part of the organization. And a couple of salespeople chimed in and said, yeah, but they've seen a lot of instances where like that person really doesn't want to help you and in some ways can become a blocker for you. I'm curious, what's the dominant approach for you guys? Do you try to leverage your existing champions to get into the other party organization? At Unity, we definitely will. But I think if I'm getting to the heart of your question, what I think is interesting about that is, again, going back to who has influence over who, oftentimes you'll find at a large organization, they may make an acquisition of a smaller company And that smaller company may be using your product. Let's use that as an example. I think the question is before you go and say, hey, look at what these guys are doing. You need to understand what the reputation is of that smaller company inside the greater organization. Oftentimes they may be seen as thought leaders and the greater organization will follow whatever they do. But they could also be perceived in the exact opposite way. And I've seen both over the course of my career where the last thing you want to do is mention that they're using your products because they are not seen as a thought leader or somebody that the greater organization would want to follow. So I think it's important, again, do your homework, understand the people part of this, not just the tech. So transitioning then over to the really new stuff where there is no relationship, right? Right. There is no cross sell from the gaming part into the film or engineering architecture sort of side. What's the approach there? 
Well, it's a great opportunity to become a thought leader, being able to educate your customer on things, especially executives. There's only so much time in the day. So if you can add value to that executive by bringing new ideas on how their company can be more efficient, that's typically a very well-received message and will get you in the door. I think it's a lot of fun, right? There's a little bit of trial and error, what message works, what doesn't. And I'm a huge fan of talking about other use cases that you have of where you've helped a company save money, um, become more effective, win more customers, all of which we're doing with the Unity platform. Well, cool. This is, uh, yeah, I've, I've learned a ton about how to use the underdog strategy today. And it's just fascinating to hear the stories also about how you know Google evolved and how you're changing Unity. If people want to learn more about you, want to learn more about Unity, what's the best way to, to get in touch with you? Yeah, I think reach out to me on LinkedIn. That's a great way to get in touch with me. I'm pretty active on that. And I'd love to hear from anybody. You know, I think, I think the last thing I'll say about being the underdog is the reason I love it so much besides the conversation with customers is internally the sales teams become so close. You are better together than you are alone. A win for one rep is a win for the whole company when you're a young company. And, and that's a lot of fun. So have fun with it. You know, think differently. Get out, enjoy yourself. Get out there and, you know, enjoy the fight because it really is a unique time in a company's life when, when you are the underdog. And hopefully you move past, you cross the chasm and you become, you know, the technology that everybody's using. But enjoy the ride. It's a fun process. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.